I think where people are most at risk are in their own homes and, you know, people that are dealing with abuse and control and uh, physical and emotional abuse, I should say, and, and control is that, I mean, that's where the real danger is to people in their own homes. And obviously we're not all in danger, but uh, I think people, you know, forget that there are so many vulnerable people who are involved in chronic violence and chronic abuse. So I, I think that's the real problem. The, the, the problem is not serial killers. And that's probably why we do find them so fascinating because they are rare. And most people have never met a serial killer or investigated or known anyone killed by a serial killer. And I'm not saying, and when I say rare, rare does not mean never. I'm quoting Michael Johnson, <laughs> gold medalist, Michael Johnson, rare does not mean never. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Julia Cowley, a retired FBI agent and criminal profiler. Julia spent 22 years in law enforcement investigating violent crime, including 11 years as an agent and a decade more as a member of the famed Behavioral Analysis Unit, or BAU. Julia makes no bones about the fact that true crime is what led her toward forensic science and law enforcement. Prior to joining the FBI, Julia was a special agent and forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. She has a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of Oregon and a master's degree in forensic science from George Washington University. At the BAU, Julia was the lead profiler in the Golden State Killer case and has had other assignments in the FBI, including investigating white-collar crime, public corruptions, civil rights matters, and other topics in the Boston field office. Julia is also the host of her own podcast, The Consult, a true crime podcast that's currently on a hiatus, but will be returning soon. It examines the behavior that occurs before, during, and after the commission of a criminal act. Julia has brought retired FBI profilers together on the show to explore cases they've worked on, from the original Night Stalker who terrorized California in the 1970s and the 1980s before being caught in 2018, and the most frightening serial killer most people have never heard of, Israel Keys. BAU is a highly competitive part of an already highly competitive agency's investigations and operations section of its critical incident response group. Popularized by television shows like Mindhunter and Criminal Minds and books and movies like The Silence of the Lambs, the BAU is well known for its study of serial killers, its classification of offenders connected to certain types of crime scenes, and as a part of high-profile investigations like the investigation of the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, the investigation of the killing of John JonBenet Ramsey, and the murder last year of four students at the University of Idaho. We dive into the story of the serial killer Israel Keys at about the 28-minute mark. But before that, we discuss criminal profiling, solving puzzles, and being driven by the idea of that knock on the door 
that begins the process of bringing a perpetrator to justice. Why suspects' families are also victims, the reason for our appetite in society for true crime, and Julia's colleagues at the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit, and one important topic I hope you pay attention to. And that's when it comes to being a victim, what we should really be worried about. We do that through the lens of domestic violence, which is involved in one out of every five murders in the United States, and one third of all female homicide victims are killed by intimate partners. We also talk about a different type of homicide. The likelihood of being killed by a stranger is much more likely to be by some random person you meet one night. And we do that through the lens of a case Julia followed when she worked for the FBI in Boston, and I was a reporter for the Boston Globe. That's the theory behind the death in the summer of 1996 of Karina Holmer, a Swedish au pair who went out to a bar with her friends near Fenway Park and never came home alive. Today, continuing our series of October Halloween episodes, we're going to turn away from fictional writing to an actual person whose story is also laced with a bit of myth and fiction. Israel Keyes, who was 34 at the time of his death, is a serial killer, bank robber, burglar, arsonist, kidnapper, and rapist who captured the attention of Americans in 2012 after he died of suicide in custody. After his death is when law enforcement authorities announced that he had murdered at least three victims, committed dozens of other felonies, and was suspected in killing more. After Keyes was arrested, the FBI took his laptop and his girlfriend's computer, and they found that Keyes had been collecting pictures of missing people in the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, NamUs. This is run by the United States Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, and it was a slick way to look up missing persons without conducting easily detectable Google searches for their names. He did the same thing with online newspapers, using vague search terms about missing people and then clicking on the articles he was interested in instead of searching. What made Keyes quite different from other serial killers was how he was responsible for killings from Vermont to Alaska and said he buried kill kits with duct tape, money, and weapons in things like Home Depot buckets across the country. He also said he picked his victims at random. Although there's some strong evidence that suggests not everything Keyes said can be trusted. According to the FBI, authorities recovered two kill caches, one in Alaska and one in New York, that contained money, weapons, and items for disposing bodies. Before his death, Keyes indicated that he had killed 18-year-old high school student Samantha Koning in Anchorage, Alaska, and dismembered her body before traveling to Texas. He also disclosed that less than a year earlier, he had killed 49-year-old Bill Courier and 55-year-old Lorraine Courier in Essex Junction, Vermont. He also claimed to have killed four people in Washington State and one in New York, although the FBI has never released information about who those people are. But if you go to his Wikipedia page on any given day, you'll see a list of 14 to 25 suspected victims, many of whom authorities have linked to other people. 
It's not uncommon to hear in a true crime forum when a suspect can't be identified, something like, well, Israel Keys must have done it. One podcaster has done five seasons of episodes on him, and Maureen Callahan, the columnist and writer, wrote a book, American Predator, that have both caused many a sleepless night. Today, we're going to look at Israel Keys through the lens of an actual FBI profiler. That This episode was inspired by three amazing episodes that Julia and her colleagues did on Israel Keys. Learned a lot about the myths and misconceptions of the supposed supercriminal, the odd mistakes he made that got him caught, how a lot of things that frightened people about Keys really just had to do with mundane elements of his interests, and we'll also discuss what we should probably really be worried about. Hey, Julia, I wanted to thank you for being on again. I really enjoyed, and actually my listeners really enjoyed, it's one of our two of our most popular episodes, the two episodes that you came on to talk about what the real life of a um, BAU profiler is like. And I'm really excited that coming soon, possibly in the next few months, uh, your podcast, The Consult, with you and your partners from the BAU will be returning. I was at CrimeCon last week and I, you know, I recommended, hey, this is the closest thing to actually being in the room and understanding what um, a profiler profilers do and what they don't do. And so I'm excited that that's coming back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. And I appreciate all the support that you've given me and our podcast, our little rinky dink podcast. Um, and I appreciate the support of um, the prosecutors as well. And Jason Usry, who does Santa, maybe a criminal podcast. But it's been a huge support and one of the main reasons why we are able to come back and do this. And we'll see what happens. We're really excited about it. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great group of people. Uh, you know, Brett and Alice from the Prosecutors and Jason are amazing, amazing people. And also, I mean, I don't think we talked about this before, but the team that you have on the podcast is pretty amazing, too. Do you want to say anything about them or... Well, they're some of my best friends. Uh, absolutely. We worked together at the BAU. Um, so I, I, Susan Kostler drew and Bob drew, and they were my mentors in the BAU when I first got there. They'd been there for a long time prior to my arrival. And then one of my other colleagues, Angela Surser. And Angela and I were in the same training class at BAU. We arrived around the same time. And the way that it works is that when they get enough new profilers into the unit, you go through classroom training. It's about 16 weeks. And then you go off to your respective units wherever you're assigned. And then you do more specific work, working with certified profilers, and you're working on real cases with them. And it's about a year, a year and a half process to become certified. So, um, and Angela has an entirely different expertise. She worked domestic and international terrorism. So she brings a lot, a a different perspective 
to our team. But also when we when we were in training together, we really connected because of our true love of true crime. So she knew all about the cases like I did. And we just became <laughs> very fast friends um, and, and, you know, worked together many years. And we all decided to do this one. Well, I decided let's do a podcast and here's what we're going to do. And we're just going to do it like we were at work talking. Yeah. I was going to ask who came up with the idea. <laughs> it was it was definitely my idea. Um, I I wanted to do it, but I know that this is this is you know something you cannot do alone. You can't really look at a case and do it all by yourself. I mean, you can maybe come up with some ideas, and but you, you really do need to have a team of people with different perspectives who can keep you in check, make sure, am I thinking about this right? Or is it, or should I be looking at this in a different way? And uh, it really makes the overall product better when you have that team. And, um, you know, I, I was really fortunate, particularly in my unit to have people like Susan and Bob to work with. And, and Susan, uh, I knew of her, I didn't really know her that well until we got to BAU, but she was a public corruption agent like I was, and she worked some phenomenal cases. She was just a really good agent. And also back um, early in her career, she worked cold case homicides in the Washington mm-hmm. field office. So um, I, I really just had a lot of respect for her work and her background. And, and some of the people when I got to the unit, they call me Little Costler. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 th- I thought, well, I, I don't know if I can, um, if anyone can have a better nickname for me, you know, the, you know, I, I was honored really. <laughs> if compliment, right? Yeah. Right. If you think I'm anything like her, then that's, um, you know, you can't pay me a better compliment. So, um, yeah. And then when we do the show and you've listened to it, it is, you know, sometimes I don't know what we're going to talk about. Some of these cases we've already worked on. Um, sometimes things come up that we hadn't discussed and it really is just like sitting in the room and, and looking at cases and talking about the behavior and that's kind of how we do it. And, and then the, the profile and the, the, the observations sort of develop and then they would be, you know, at BAU finalized into a report. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I, I really like about it, you guys said, East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer. You did Israel Keys, who we'll be talking about today. But you also did some cases that I think don't necessarily, you know, make the biggest splashes in the world, but really give you an interesting idea of why things like homicide happen. And Mm -hmm. I I, I thought, I just think it's a good menu of things. And it's something that's super that would be, I think it's really smart for anybody who's interested in true crime, criminal justice, the psychology piece of it, which I think that covers everything I'm interested in (laughs) 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 to really check it out, which, you know, one of the things that you mentioned when we were on the, um, the podcast last time was that, you know, your mom had had a copy of Helter Skelter and said that you couldn't read it. And as soon as she put it down and finished it, you picked it up. (laughs) You talked about- True story. True story. (laughs) Yeah, I I can totally see it. And, you know, we talked about Mindhunter. I don't think we talked about like In Cold Blood, Truman Mm. Capote's book. And that was one for me that was really, I mean, it struck me 
one, because it's very good writing, you know, it was well reported. Maybe all the facts aren't right, but that's true of any any potential reporting. But one of the things that um, Truman Capote was able to do, and some people believe Harper Lee actually helped him on this, but one of the things he was able to do is really talk a little bit about the motivations and, and the behaviors that were connected to it. And I, I remember that being a point for me where I was like, huh, why, why do people do what they do, you know, when it comes to these things that fit outside of the, uh, the social norms. And, you know, I think a lot of people are really interested in those topics and those areas. You know, 2023 has been a big year for true crime cases. You have the Long Island serial killer, or, or at least one of the Long Island serial killers arrested. You've had a lot of things happening in the Delphi case with Abby Williams and Liberty Germain. You've got the University of Idaho killings going on. But one of the things that I notice in a lot of these conversations, there's a lot of conversations about, you know, why do people do it? And and I think there's a lot of fascination about sort of like darkness. And I was just curious, like as somebody who, you know, has worked um, and supported work on actual cases and who's a true crime fan, any thoughts on your end on why we're so fascinated by this stuff? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm still asking myself. I can only speak for myself. And I live from the beginning, not only fascinated, well, why does somebody do this, but what kind of person would do this, but also catching them. It's just the idea of justice in that somebody who does something so horrible is going to pay for what they did and, and the figuring it out and the piecing it together and the investigative portion of it just fascinates me. I want to know, how did you solve it? How did you find them? How, you know, how did you interview them? And I think that was what really piqued my interest in it to begin with. And that's the fascinating part for me, that the, the obtaining of justice, I also think this is this stuff is so out of the realm of possibility in our normal everyday lives and it's scary to people and it's thrilling in some way to learn about these cases and and be scared it's kind of like people watching horror films but I, yeah. I do think there's an an element of that of you know you're it's thrilling because it's scary and but then you know, okay, I'm I'm safe in my house watching this on TV or reading this book or listening to this podcast. But it's also, you know, there's an entertainment part of it because of, you know, how scary and, and these these stories, you know, they they are people's lives and they're they're very interesting. And the yeah. interesting it is an it's an interesting thing from, you know, how did this person end up a killer to finding a victim to killing them to detectives coming in and, and now this case becoming part of their lives. That that entire process is extremely fascinating. And, and, and the I victims too. I mean, we don't often get windows that deep into people's lives. Yeah, exactly. And and I've always shied away from 
victim part of it. Obviously, we, you know, we've talked about victimology. Victimology is extremely important. But, you know, as a, a profiler at BAU, I I never interacted with the victims. I didn't interview them. That's what mm-hmm. the police do. And so um it it helps me, I think, stay, you know, maybe more mentally stable. It's easier. It's easier. Yeah. Um and, and it's easier to be more objective. It it can yeah. be very difficult when you're dealing one on one with the victim. So but yeah, and then and then hearing later, I have heard victims talk and victims' families talk and not only victims' families, but um, the perpetrators' families as well, and and hearing their their perspectives after the fact, and that is that is fascinating. But it's also that's the part that when I start to feel really emotional, and I you know I, I sometimes have to detach from that. Um, yeah, it, it's it's really it's really hard. It's really sad, and and you know it wouldn't be <laughs> it would be hard to concentrate and do my job if I was, you know, so sad all the time and empathizing too much with the victims all the time. You know? So you just have to step back and and look at it in it through a different kind of less emotional lens. But I remember it's interesting you said that about the the part of the um you know the suspects families as well as the the victims families. Like two of the hardest things in reporting on crime were you know, one, spending time with the victims' families, often, you know, right in the aftermath of it. But another really hard time that I think people don't think about is when, you know, you're out there in Brooklyn in the middle of the night, and you've got this, like, mile-long rap sheet of a person in your back pocket that you've gotten from police public information, and you're interviewing the family of the suspect. And you're, you know, inevitably in the beginning, it's like Johnny was a good boy, blah, 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 blah. And you see them right in front of you sort of like falling apart into the reality and almost admitting it to themselves. That that was like a painful piece of it that um, that people, I think, mm-hmm. us as journalists don't really, don't really expect. So I remember one time we were having an offline conversation about the Karina Homer case. Oh, yeah. And I think that's probably like the one moment and we were having the conversation by text message where I was like, oh, Julia just got emotional about that and the idea of of bringing bringing justice to the to the um when it comes to the cases. Is that, is that is that something that you think drove you in your work too or Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and maybe this is wrong, but sometimes what really would drive me and the focus, and I think the way that was the healthiest way for me to deal with it is to focus on getting justice to make the offender pay as opposed to justice for the victims. Now, certainly that's a big part of it, but I, you know, I really did have to stay focused on an offender because again, trying when you when you start really thinking about what the victims have gone through and their families, that that just that brings up so much emotion. And and how would I feel in that situation? And what if that happened to one of my loved ones? Or it happened? I, it's too much. It's it's overwhelming. And it's not that I don't address those feelings, but when I when in doing the work, I, I tend to stay focused on, boy, that guy's out there somewhere, and. 
I just want to get them so bad. I want, you know, someday that knock on the door that that they have to experience that knock on the door and you've, you've been caught. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what really drives me. That sort of that idea, you know, of, um, I don't know if it's justice. I I want to say revenge. It's not revenge, but just this justice. And, um, and then after that part's done, then you, you feel like, wow, I, I, I hope in some way that this does help, um, you know, the victims and the families and, and to help them become survivors. Yeah. Yeah. I, so it really, I think what really bothers me just about any case and, you know, and, and there's so many cases out there that remain unsolved. I know that, but because of maybe where I've lived or who I've talked to, or somebody's brought something to my attention, I know more about certain cases and particularly Mm -hmm. I know a lot of cases because I was in the Boston division for many, many years. So the cases that were, um, you know, very prominent in, in that area, I would read about and learn about, and they became, you know, cases where I'm like, Oh, that's the one case I want solved. And Oh, no, wait, this is the one case. But, um, but I do realize there's so many more cases out there that are like that. We're just, you're just waiting and, you know, there's somebody out there that did it and they need to pay for it one way or another. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause I know like, it sounds awful. Like, we're gonna, yeah, but I, but I think, you know, it really, it drives me like justice drives me and yeah. I don't like people getting away with things. That's you know, so I was a little bit of, you know, it's kind of how I was like growing up. Like, wait, that's not fair. That's wrong. Right. Yes. That's wrong. <laughs> can't that's do right. that. Right. Well, and, and that, you know, thinking about like that idea of justice, it's really, you know, it, it, it's interesting because it's like, I love the word just doing what's just, right? Like the truly, like to your point about fairness, and I know fairness is so complicated, but what's what's just in this situation or what's right in this situation? And I, you know, remembering like that, that particular case, the uh, Karina Homer one, which was the Swedish au pair who, um, she was like in her early twenties maybe. And I know it was 1996 because I was an intern for the Boston Globe around this time. I think I was in their Washington bureau that year. I can't remember whether I was in the city or Washington, but it was a, it was a big case and, you know, she disappeared near Fenway and then in, in the middle of the night. But one of the things I was thinking about from the perspective of an investigator, and I've never asked actually, you know, a cop about this is like, do you have to detach yourself a little bit in the beginning? Because your first suspects in those cases are going to be loved ones or people who are close to them. And, you know, that's like, a, it's just a weird way to imagine the world. Cause you know, for most of us, when someone, something horrible happens you know, our thoughts are for the victim's family. But if you get caught into that emotion in law enforcement, you may be passing over, you know, some. Absolutely. I mean, every time you're talking with someone in some of these cases, you're probably thinking, is this the person and who who could have done this? And, and again, in my role as a a profiler, I didn't do those interviews, but I would read them and I would read them with kind of, am I reading the words of the offender here and the the report written by the police officer or the detective or first responder or, you know, you know, those initial stages, you, you really are considering anybody, any one of these people could be a suspect and particularly, you know, in a case where 
you know, you just have someone maybe at lower risk and they, um, you know, you, you have to consider that somebody close to them caused them harm. I mean, that's our biggest risk. People that are close to us. Most people are killed mm-hmm. by people that they know and often they're killed by their loved ones. So yeah. that's what you have to consider when you're starting off in these investigations. Yeah, I didn't even think about that idea that like for a high risk victim, your pool of people is very broad. And for a low risk victim, maybe the initial pool is much closer to them. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, happenstance or something random, but that's going to be like the the 1%. Well, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about, I know you guys did um, – uh, several episodes. I can't remember how many episodes on the Israel Keys case. It wasn't the first time I was exposed to it. I had read about it, uh, you know, a number of times. Um, I had, you know, seen TV discussions, read about it on discussion boards, listened to um, a podcast about it. And one of the things about the Israel Keys case is it may not be the most well-known serial killer case, but among those who follow true crime, he's a total boogeyman, right? Like the, you know, the the super predator who travels across the country burying kill kits and killing people years later. But one of the things that I liked about your episodes on it, and, and I'm, I'm curious about why you even decided to to tackle it, it felt so level-headed, and it was like probably the first thing and the last thing so far that I read where or that I listened to where I was like, "Oh, this guy was just a human <laughs> with some with some weird interests that happened to make him, you know, decent at what he did." Why did you guys mm-hmm. decide to do keys? Well, uh, we did that case. I picked it, and one of the reasons was because. Bob had been, Bob Drew had been the lead profiler on the Courier case, which was um, Bill and Lorraine Courier. They had gone missing from their home in Essex Junction, Vermont in 2011, um, June 9th, 2011 to be exact, or they were reported missing June 9th. We believe they went missing June 8th. And we worked that case entirely separate without any knowledge that this could be connected to another case at all. And it was just one of those very bizarre cases. And we went through everything in terms of victimology and, um, you know, it it was a challenge and these very, you know, low risk couple just living their lives and they just disappear from their home. There was definitely signs that they didn't go willingly. And so, Um, And then, you know, a little less than a a year later, um, Samantha Koenig in Anchorage, Alaska is kidnapped out of the kiosk, the coffee kiosk that she was working in and and the offender jumps in. And we worked that case um, that was not assigned to any of us, um, was assigned to another profiler who's not on the podcast. And um, but we worked it as a unit, as I mentioned earlier, um, but we worked it together. So we were all on that case and that, that was a very different case. And there was no connection made that the, this case that happened in Vermont could be connected to this case in Alaska. They were so different, different victimology, different MO, just no idea that they could be connected. And, once Israel Keys was arrested um, for 
the murder of Samantha Koenig. And he started confessing. He confesses to this killing in Vermont. And that's when we find out, oh my gosh, they're connected. And did you guys believe it at first? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We we did believe it because the information was coming from the FBI in Anchorage, Alaska. There were some very specific things that he said. I mean, how would he know this? I mean, you know, obviously mm. you corroborate what's said. But um, yeah, I guess there was a little bit of disbelief, but I might, I, I, I didn't necessarily doubt it. I, I think I was just more in shock, like, wow. And, and I mean, that it's, it's, it was just, it was unbelievable. And then you're, then you start thinking, well, what else, what other cases could we have potentially looked at that could be connected? And, and at this point, I'm not aware of any that have been connected to him that we worked in the unit while I was there or while, you know, somebody else had worked on while I was there. But, um, you know, <laughs> you start thinking, what what else is out there? And you, I mean, I know, I don't want to say we questioned ourselves because I, I don't know there was any, if there was really any way possible that we could have, you know, really in any way connected the cases without right, without a confession yeah right. they, they were in their 50s and yeah they yeah, they and were they, they were in their 50s it was a home invasion he went and um kidnapped them out of their home he took them to another location in their in their vehicle he sexually assaulted both of them murdered them um left them um their bodies have never been found and then you know this case with Samantha. She's 18 years old. She's by herself. She's this wasn't a home invasion or anything like that. This was she was kidnapped from uh, her place of employment, and you know obviously almost about as far as you can get from one another in terms of geography in our country. And um, I mean, just coincidentally, these these two cases came into the unit, and um, you know, and and I think too that that. I just don't know that there's any way without him telling us that we ever could have connected them behaviorally. They're just too far apart in, in, in many ways in terms of victimology and geography. It was, you know, it was uh, quite surprising. Yeah. And that's, I mean, for me, I think that the geography piece of it, the, the age of the victims, the um, the fact that one involved uh, a man, and you know Samantha was a young woman. All of that stuff to me, kind of, you know, it's a reality that I kind of like know in the back of my head. But I think sometimes we have a tendency to think like killers, particularly serial killers, have a type, and that type is very narrow, and that. And there's something about like once you know their type, you stop worrying. Like Ted Bundy, what was it, brunettes who, you know, of a certain age. And I, I wonder whether there's like a misconception there about, you know, the narrowness of type, if that makes sense. Well, I don't know if there's a misconception. I do think that there is typically an ideal victim for an offender. They, they probably have something in their mind that's ideal and they strive to find that particular victim. And in this case with Israel Keys, I'm not sure that he really cared. He didn't, he, he just had, you know, a level of deviance that 
you know, his range of victims that were desirable to him was much wider than, let's say, like you said, like a Ted Bundy. He he was very specific. He had kind of an age range. And of course, most of the, you know, the hairstyle was popular at the time, you know, long straight hair parted in the middle. And, but you know, he, he did seem to stick to a certain, you know, look in, in terms of, um, you know, his, what he desired and, and sought out. And, but there are other killers who I think just have a wider range of what's desirable to him. And, and Israel Keys is one of them. Yeah. yeah. One of the interesting things about him, the more I read about him, and I don't know whether this was explicitly said, but in anything I read, but, uh, and I re- recently read the American Predator book by Maureen Callahan on the Keys case, which is really interesting. And I don't know how much this exactly was said, but there were two things that when I think of what he was getting out of killing that he really liked, it seems like, and there were probably other things, but one, it certainly seems like he had a bit of a fetish for missing people. They found a bunch of photos of missing people who even some he clearly couldn't have killed. And because, you know, the bodies, like very few of uh, Outside of Samantha Coning, who he confessed, he confessed to hers. I don't think they found bodies for for his victims. And then the other thing that stuck out to me was when they described his confession and his time with the couriers and his time with Samantha. There were all these moments where he made them feel like they were going to live, like smoking a cigarette with them, having a cigar, taking their their restraints off or other things like that, or that this is just a kidnapping and you're going to get out of it. I also wondered whether the like conning them and that sort of torturing them and making them feel like they were going to get away in that moment where they knew they weren't, whether he was really into that power and control connected to that and that would, that's what drove him more than the actual victim type. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. I think that is a perfect way that you just described that. That is absolutely part of the power and control that he can control this because he had the power to let them live or die. And I think there's some gratification that somebody like him gets out of, you know, I'm I'm duping you. The duper's delight, you know, that hey, I get... Man. I get a thrill out of duping people and lying to them and making them believe, believe something that isn't true. And only I can take that away. And, you know, he did describe that he liked to strangle people because he could, he could watch that and he could watch them die that way. And so I really think he really enjoyed. Stop, start, stop, start. Exactly. Exactly. He, he didn't want to end it quickly and and some offenders do they just want to get it over with and and end it quickly and but others you know really enjoy the the time they spend and and that was part of his gratification is to really make them believe that they're going to survive this see the hope in their eye and then you know watch it disappear when they realize he's not going to let me live he's going to kill me and that's a thrill for him. Right. But yeah. What is it about keys that you think sort of like captures 
you know, the imagination. I know, I know the first thing for me were, were the kill kits that he planted these kill kits in Home Depot buckets with, you know, tape and, um, you know, guns that he never used. I don't think except for once that he said, but, you know, guns and all these other things across the country and then was going back to them years later. That just struck me as like, that's the first time I've heard that one. What What do you think captured the imagination when it came to him? The planning and the fact that this could happen anywhere and anyone could be a victim. And it's so random. Like, I'm just going to plant this here, have this later. And if I decide to come back, it's here for me. So I, I think that, and, and we've never quite seen anything like that. We have seen killers who are very good planners. They have kill kits. They keep rape kits with them and, and drive around with them. But this level of leaving things around the country to come back to in order to kill in that area of the country, I've never seen that before. I've never seen every single case in the world, but I think that was pretty fascinating. I think when we realize he was doing that, we think, oh, wow, he is smart. He's sophisticated. He's cunning. He's, you know, he, and he can, he can get anywhere and he can get to anybody. And I think that's part of the fascination with him is um, that this idea that he's, you know, super smart, you know, this really, you know, really fits this kind of myth of the evil genius because he did take that extra step of, um, you know, this long-term planning. Right, 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 right. Where, where other killers may be more impulsive or they may be more, I guess, I guess less, yeah, less dil- diligent and precise mm-hmm. about what they're doing. But And the interesting thing about him too is, you know, there are things that he did toward the end that may have, may have se- seemed impulsive that probably contributed to him getting caught. It's like he broke some of his rules or his code, but part of me in the back of my head watching his, you know, the last kill was close to his home, which he said he didn't want to do. He used her ATM card. That was it. That's actually another example, the the kidnapping and ransom, where I think that having the power over the family, making them think that she's alive. But But one of the things that sort of struck me was, and I may be completely wrong, but I was like, as I was reading about his... Samantha's death and what he was doing afterwards, I was like, you really strike me at, at like all my clients who go through their self-destructive phase where they're just trying to get themselves caught. <laughs> and I was like, if this guy, cause I, I had also read that with keys, you know, before he was caught, he was caught in Texas while he was on a trip because of using the, the ATM card but he had actually, at least according to what I had read, he had spent some time with his sister around that time. And he had actually cried to her and said, you don't know how bad a person I am. And I thought to myself at first, like, okay, this is a little weird, right? A guy who's a psychopath, plans and kills people, is breaking down and having this almost like depressed, emotional moment. And I'm not used to, I guess, looking at people who are, who are, you know, psychopaths or sadists or, or those things 
that that they may get tripped up by some of the same things that we get tripped up by. That's where I would guess I'm going with that. Right. And I, you, I guess I used to think that, well, people like him, you know, have no feelings, no emotions, no, no anything. And I've turned that around. So sometimes I think, and I, and I have seen this in other cases that I have worked on that maybe they have a lot of emotion and a lot of feeling and they feel things maybe to the extreme as opposed to not feeling anything. But a lot of that is very self-centered. So it, it's a, the focus is on them, but they may feel you know, a, a lot of emotion and, and it, but it really does come back to, oh, how is this impacting me? And I don't know why he broke down and what he was exactly feeling, but you know, he had just you know, done what he had done and, and perhaps, you know, having some emotion about it or feeling sorry for himself, what, whatever the emotion was, it wasn't about anything, you know, it was all related to him and reward. his needs and his, you know, and, um, but yeah, and I, I you know, I think they're capable of feeling emotion <laughs> and I do, I do feel that, they can be sensitive and I don't mean sensitive in a caring way, but just sensitive to what other people do and say and, and how they, they feel they're being treated and mm -hmm. it may be at more of the extreme and as opposed to them just having no feelings at all. And I think they get a lot of, and I, I hate to say they, 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 but <laughs> some, <laughs> cause I don't want to just overgeneralize because right. you know, the, there's no, not all serial killers are the same. There, there's, there's so many, you know, there's so many differences between them. But, um, you know, what I do think is particularly in the behavior that we observe with Israel Keys, there is sadism. They enjoy hurting other people, seeing the pain of other people and having control over other people, whether they live or die or whether their loved ones live or die. And that's that's very sadistic. And he really enjoyed that. And for whatever reason, I, I think he wasn't getting what he wanted. And so he he had a breakdown. And, and um, But I, I don't think it necessarily meant that he was sorry for what he did or felt bad for what he did because, you know... <laughs> you know, what he did is to such an extreme that I just don't believe, um, you know, he, he really felt sorry about that. You know, he may be tortured in other ways, but yeah. I don't think he felt sad or bad for what he had done. Yeah. I wonder whether it's almost like, um, because I am one of those people who over time I've kind of convinced myself that, you know, a number, not all, serial killers probably have intense empathy, but it's cognitive empathy. They know how to read people. They understand the way people think. Like that had to come somewhere from somewhere, but they don't have that same emotional emotional empathy. Um, but I almost like I think of him like an addict, right? He used to he would kill someone according to his confessions. And then, you know, he talks about like robbing banks to decrease the urge or the need to kill someone. And then, you know, you see things like, 
in the final killing, he actually uses a, I think it was a cell phone to call uh, or text the victim's family to do a ransom. It's like, it's almost like you're like one upping yourself, almost like a drug addict where like the first hit is great, but you need to do more to get the next hit and the more to do the next hit. I think of the Long Island serial killer uh, suspect, Rux Harriman, and who the suspect, whoever the suspect or whoever the offender was, called the family. And it's that same kind of like torturing people. And I'm wondering whether for some killers, they have to one up themselves almost like an addict to get that same satisfaction from their fantasy. It certainly is thrill seeking behavior. I see what you mean by that. Just one upping and not only one upping, but perhaps also prolonging this, you know, this was a good experience and they want it to continue. They want to prolong it. So what, better way than to torture a victim's family to prolong the agony because who's going to be in the most agony after your victim is dead, victim's family, victim's loved ones. And so I think it's about that, like prolonging it and, and you describe it in a good way. And and it's probably a way that the best we can understand it is that he is continuously trying to kind of one up it or continue it and um, that's the way he cho- cho- chooses to do it. Now, with Israel Keys, I, he's very opportunistic, too. I mean, you might as well take advantage. You you have a debit card. You might as well get something out of it. So I think that's part of it as well, just the oppor- you know, opportunities. Like a, a burglar you know, goes into a home, and their, their main motivation is to sexually assault somebody. But while they're there, they might as well steal some things. Right. But, you know, and so... You know, he he was a very opportunistic um, individual, and I think just took advantage of the situation, and it worked well. Oh, I can also continue, you know, by you know torturing the family, and that can continue my thrill and my need to, you know, exert my total control over another human being. Yeah, and it's interesting to think of like that, you know, being an opportunist and you know, being able to sort of like create the spider web and let people fall into it and how that feels very random, almost like the way an impulsive person would operate. But yeah, it it makes me wonder whether really all the planning and people talk about this in the military, you plan. So in the moment you're, you have many options, you can do many different things Because one of the things uh, that he did after he, according to his confession, after he kidnapped Samantha, was that he um, went to, was it her house or the boyfriend's house, while she was still kidnapped and stole the debit card out of the truck. Um, Right. Yeah, those are things that do seem to have that three thrill-seeking and opportunistic uh, components to them happening at the same time just seems yeah a little frightening like the boogeyman Mm -hmm. and it also i mean it it kind of was i mean kind of it was his undoing and for all the planning and as smart as he thought he was it really boiled down to he really wasn't as smart as you know maybe we give him credit for yeah he's he's not dumb and if he had stuck to his plan, you know, he probably could have killed more people. 
uh, you know, past Samantha. I, I think they're they're very potential or very likely other victims out there that we don't know about yet or haven't confirmed. But he couldn't help himself, and that's kind of where you know he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Mm. And how he got caught is just the dumbest thing he could have done is to you know continue to use a bank card and and he could be easily tracked by law enforcement and that's exactly what happened he got they were tracking him in the use of her debit card as he was taking out the money that he had demanded from the family put that they put into her account and law enforcement was tracking him real time and then he he had a car uh, that was observed on the ATM and, and then everyone knew who to look for a car and a, and a very, you know, astute trooper saw the car, pulled him over and, and that was the end of him. And, and it's just his stupidity. That was his undoing is, you know, and again, the, I think this idea that he thinks he's smarter than everybody else. And ultimately most of these people are not. Right. Yeah. Right. I remember you saying that, you know, I I had asked you or something about the intelligence of serial killers. And you said they're just like everybody else in terms of intelligence, you know, average, smart, some are smarter, some are less intelligent. One of the things I don't know why I just thought of this, but one of the things I remember reading about with him was like a it was a family friend or a friend of his girlfriend who said that a bunch of people, you know, who are around him long before this, it just admired the way that he raised his daughter so well, they wanted him to raise their daughters. And I wonder whether that's also a part of what makes him so frightening that his mask was so good, that, you know, people, there weren't those other signs of like violence or the the kind of controlling behavior with Somebody like, let's say, Dennis Rader, who's BTK, when I heard he was the animal control officer, I was like, this makes sense. Um, the, <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It's all about control and rules and regulations. But I wonder whether, like, how good his mask was, like, whether anybody would have picked him off the street as, you know, I, I, I'm sure you. most of us grew up in a neighborhood where there was a house. There's a house that, like, your parents said to walk by on the other side of the street or you didn't go to for trick-or-treat on Halloween. I just, Mm -hmm. I I don't feel like he was living in that house. (laughs) No, and I think that's why, that's why I try to avoid the terms like monster and evil and because that's what we start to picture. And most serial sexual killers really do appear very normal. And to other people outside, you know, that don't know them super well, um, but even to people that are close to them. I mean, nobody thinks that they're necessarily living with a serial killer or living next to a serial killer. And they appear very normal. And that's why I think, you know, saying, oh, they're monster. Yeah, they, they do very monstrous things, but that's not necessarily what you're looking for. And, I, you know, I do think, too, that that oftentimes, like, you know, like you pointed out, they they observe behavior. They know they they know how to interact with people. They know many times how to get people to trust them. 
And oftentimes that's how people can be victimized by them because they are good at that. And yeah, he may have worn a mask, but I also believe at some point, you know, in, in you know, really good interviewing and investigations, there's going to be something that comes out that, you know, and investigators, I'm, I'm sure probably know this, that there were signs. It's not necessarily signs. Oh, he, he, we should have known he was a serial killer, but there are signs of this controlling behavior, potentially abusive behavior. I, I heard, or I've, I've read things written by Carrie Rousen and yeah, um, Dennis she's Rader's daughter. Dennis yeah. Rader's daughter. I've seen her interviewed and I've read things that she's written and, you know, it, kind of the narrative and, and when, when, Dennis Rader was arrested. I, you know, I was early on in my own career and I was not in the BAU and, and, you know, the information that was talked about him is that he was very normal. He wasn't abusive. He, you know, he was just, you know, a a regular guy and nobody would know. But as Carrie has told her story, yeah, maybe there wasn't physical abuse, but there were problems and she noticed them and she was a victim of abuse and, you know, again, not maybe not physical abuse. And I, I think that's, kind, you know, she's, you know, done a lot of growing and reflection and, and um, really worked on coming to grips of what, with what, um, what, you know, she had to face, but just this idea, no, he wasn't abusive at all. And, you know, did anyone really ask the right questions? I'm not sure that that was ever done back then, mm. you know? Um, and so I think there's so much more you can learn from families if they're willing to talk about that. And, and again, I don't think if you'd gone back and, and we, you know, you knew for certain what was going on in that particular household, you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, he's a serial killer. Yeah. Um, but, you know, listening to people and reading things, um, from people like Carrie, we can really learn a lot. And I know I have, you know, I've learned a lot. And, um, you know, I wish w- with time, maybe some more people would share their stories so that we can learn, you know, what are we looking for? You know, why are why are we so surprised that they're so, so normal? Are they really normal? Were there any signs? I mean, what was experienced? And, and I bet every family member of a serial killer or, you know, somebody who's done something horrible, they're going to have different experiences. They're not all going to be the same, right. um, but it would really be interesting to start kind of listening to them and piecing that together. Cause that's stuff we don't really get to hear about very much. And it helps. Yeah. It helps us understand, I think in a, in a deeper way, some of the motivations and some of the behaviors and some of the signs, there were two things in the case story that sort of stuck out the, um, during his interviews, I remember he mentioned this friend, and I think the friend's name was, we eventually found out was name was Michael, and he had been in the um, army with him. And I don't know what the question was, but the essence of the question was like, you know, when you were in the army, was, was there anybody who kind of like saw you, right? That's Jason's version of it. And he talked about this one friend that was eventually interviewed who um, he was able to share who didn't react negatively to some of his more you know negative or almost sadistic ideas or whatever it was and and because of that guy's acceptance because it may have been silence he he got a chance to 
to see a little bit more of it. But the, but when Keyes was a kid, I think years later, it came out through interviews with his family, the story of the family, he was a teenager and the family cat kept on getting into something. And he took the family cat out and uh, tied it like to a tree or something along those lines. It's something like that, but then shot the cat. And, and that Keyes, and I think he said this in the interview as well, told this story in the interview, that once he saw the reaction of people, he knew who not to share those things with. And I wonder for the people, for the serial killers who start very early doing aberrant behavior, the being able to read who reacts, what way to it helps them build a better mask. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. It makes perfect sense. And again, that goes back to what you were saying, being able to read people, understand them, and re- react appropriately when needed. Because I, I, you know, he's testing the boundaries and, you know, that, that story there, testing what, you know, what are people going to say? What are people going to do? How are people going to react? And he's looking at them for a reaction and he learned from that. Right, right. And it gives you room. So I'm curious, going back to when you guys got the first got the or the connection between the two cases, you know, what is it like for you guys as uh, BAU and people doing investigative support at that moment? Because, you know, in our previous conversation, you talked about the idea that you guys in the BAU are not the ones doing the questioning in the room, but how once someone like that is identified, how do you guys continue to support the investigation or do you, how does that? Sometimes, yes. And we would help potentially with, you know, crime analyst support, helping to put together timelines, um, interview suggestions and uh, doing research. Do we have any cases that fit what, you know, somebody may be talking about or confessing to, but yeah, we would stay involved and, and certainly we would want as much information, um, about anything that he says and and anything that he confesses to so that we can start, you know, kind of building, um, you know, a a profile of him specifically. And that could help potentially connect him to other cases, particularly, you know, with him, the the timeline is extremely important and his travels and put piecing that back together. That's not necessarily something that we would uh, as profilers do, but we have analysts and that work with, um, you know, in our field offices and in the BAU that would help put that together and try to build a complete timeline of where he was, when, and trying to determine if there are unsolved cases in those areas or near those areas that could be linked to him. Mm. So that's kind of interesting. There's the profile of your kind of unknown subject. And then there's, once you have the subject, the profiling of the actual um, person that happens and then that helps things like the the interviews. I know they've released like 30 hours of his interviews, to, which to me is just crazy that he, you know, one of the weird things about him was that he had asked, he wanted the death penalty. He wanted, he wanted, um, or he said he wanted, who knows what he really wanted, because he also tried to escape from a federal courtroom. But um, he, and I always, Julia, I wonder, and this is just speculation on my 
own mind for him and a lot of these guys that I wonder whether the idea of spending your life in prison and not being able to execute on your fantasies is like something that might be worse than death for them. But I, are you guys involved in that process as they're interviewing the people reacting to what they're saying? Because I'm thinking 30 hours, that's a lot of stuff to pay attention to. And it's got to be really tough on the interrogators to figure out how to react to somebody who's motivated so differently than, let's say, most criminals that they interview. Mm-hmm. There, we provide guidance for interview strategies and how to react and you know how to question them and and he wasn't too difficult because he was pretty you know willing to talk um the the issue with him is deciphering you know what's true and what's not mm-hmm. and you know you can't really do it right in those moments there's so much you have to kind of go back and re-listen and what did he say and and do a bunch of research and things like that to really try to determine okay what's being truthful and, and what's not um, cause you, you know, you really can't trust it all. I mean, clearly he was truthful about a few things. I'm not sure if he was truthful about everything. I mean, he's going to keep some things to himself. He's going to lie about certain things to, um, you know, as you know, for his own gratification and, um, you know, and, and I don't think anyone ever he was deceiving, you know, the families and the victims. You can't imagine maybe the investigators mm-hmm. become, became the new game for him. Yeah, I, it probably was somewhat of a game to him. And I'm only going to tell you this much, and then I'm going to keep this to myself. And you're going to have to, you know, if, if, you, if I tell you this, you got to get me a candy bar or whatever. You know, he he played a, a game with them. Um, I you know, and you know, ultimately, he wasn't he wasn't going to answer all the questions, and we know that because he decided to take his own life before really providing all the answers and and in some ways leaving more questions, which I think was just sort of his last thrill before he took his life. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Going out with that control and thrill. Yeah. Did you, did you you guys ever, were you involved in looking at his, I call it a suicide note, but I read it and it doesn't really, it sounds more like a manifesto. Yeah. were you guys involved in analyzing that? And I think, did he draw 11 skulls or he something? He did. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it was 11 and he drew them with his blood and yeah. and had some sort of notate. I forget it was like, we are all one or something. Something yeah. I, I don't remember. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, insinuating that um, there are other victims out there and they're, they're, very well, maybe, but, you know, he did leave it as a mystery and that was all done on purpose. And it was, you know, it's very dramatic. It was a very dramatic way to end. And that was on purpose. It was for shock value, I'm sure. And, you know, so at the time we did not analyze um, his note. Angela has taken a good look at it and we we talk about it on the consult. Um, Yeah, I didn't really see it either as like a suicide note necessarily, but it, you're right. It was a manifesto of some sorts. And I guess that, you know, that can be, um, you know, considered sort of an end of life gesture 
these manifestos that um, some people write before or when they know they're not going to continue to live. Do you think that um, as for someone like him who, you know, when you're investigating someone like him, he's not even in the 1% of killers at some, based on his mode of operating. And we had talked about the idea that statistics are really important to investigating crimes and other things like that. What do you what do you do from a BAU perspective when the the people are such outliers like this? Trying to think, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good sign. I have I have accomplished my goal. <laughs> so let me let me think. Um, yeah, I mean. <laughs> Most of the cases that we see at BAU are outliers, and that's why we would see them. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, overwhelmingly, you know, p- people are killed by people that they know, and often by people that are closest to them. And unless you have like some compelling reason to sus- suspect a serial killer or a killing, For example, there are other killings in the area or there's just something very unusual or bizarre about a particular case. Like, well, maybe it is a serial killer. Um, You know, usually you don't do that, but just because it is such a rare occurrence. But you have to you have to rule out all the people that are, you know, close to the victims. And um, because statistically, they're likely killed by someone close to them. And, but, you know, oftentimes with, you know, because we're at the BAU, we do get involved in these cases that are considered the outliers. But most of the time, most detectives across the country are are unlikely to ever work a serial killing. And um, so you really just have to rule out everything else Mm. before you can just say this is a serial killer unless again there's something compelling about it like there are other similar killings or forensics match you know there's the same you know dna is on multiple victims who um you didn't appear to have be connected and so um you know and and that's how you approach it and you you have to approach each case individually you have to look at them, you know, you know, to, you know, one at a time and start trying to determine and decipher what am I seeing here? What is going on here? What is the interaction that we're seeing? What is, what is the motive? What is, you know, what is practical? What is not necessary? What, yeah. What is not necessary? What is, you know, behavior that's gratuitous, the ritualistic behavior, that's the behavior that tells us, okay, what's really, why are they doing this? You know, what is with their true motive for this? And, and then, you know, you look at kind of all those things. And then if you have multiple, you sort of see what are the similarities there. And, you know, statistics is, is hard because, you know, statistically at you, you show me a case and I will say, well, this is probably someone very close to this person who killed them. <laughs> Because right. that's what statistics tell us. Statistics do not suggest that they're, you know, that most killings are related, even random killings are, are the work of a serial killer. Um, so um, I, I don't know if that really answers your question. Oh, it does. And yeah. yeah, 
one of the things that you know makes me think about and i think i think you guys talked about this on the consult episodes on israel keys and it going through the statistics in vermont and using them to sort of like recognize like these people are very low risk there's not much of a pool of people you looked at different interactions that they had online and other things like that and that it, that whole process of ruling people out is very helpful to get to the point that we have an outlier here um, and so maybe we need to approach it in a different way and it, yeah yeah no it, it completely makes sense the so so when you have a case like those two cases what is the first step to look at the data to determine whether they were high risk or low risk and well absolutely any case that we get victimology plays a extremely important part in in any assessment you know and that's you know creating a complete picture of a time or of a crime victim as best you can and it's a, it's sensitive because you have to ask difficult questions, sensitive questions, and you don't want to appear that you're victim blaming. If they, you know, are engaging in illegal behavior or anything like that, you want to be sensitive to that. But, you know, if you're engaging in illegal behavior or other high risk behavior, you, you're putting yourself you know, at a higher risk of becoming a victim of a violent crime. But it's really important to determine, you know, where their risks in their lives came from. It Was it a specific person? Was it their, their job? Was it the location of their job? Was it, you know, online activity? And, you know, when it came to the couriers and Samantha, they, you know, they were pretty low risk. I mean, Samantha's risk came from where she was working and so right, that kind of stand right on the yeah street. so you have to start thinking did the offender just happen upon her and knows you know that's where he sees her i mean that's a that's a high risk place to grab her and maybe if he you know was closer to her knew her better you know maybe he would grab her at home but no so so you have to think mm-hmm. okay maybe her risk is coming from her place of employment and the, and the couriers, I mean, there was very, again, very low risk victims. Um, there was some, um, you know, online activity, but nothing significant. That's the only thing in terms of, you know, potentially meeting somebody online. Not that, not that they were meeting people online, but that's always a risk if you're interacting online as, as it is with all of us who mm-hmm. are online. I'm not saying yeah. that, but there well, just wasn't. My Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Very high risk behavior to be <laughs> like somebody's gonna get me. <laughs> it's another tweet, and they're gonna be coming for me. It, it, number one risk factor is that he engaged on Twitter, right? Exactly. Right, right. Or X. The, yeah. right yes, X now, X now, or mm-hmm. tweet Xer, I call it. <laughs> I don't know what I. I mean, I'm starting to get used to calling it X. I, I guess you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> um. One of the yeah, one of the things about that with the the couriers and Samantha, did do we know whether how how much in advance he picked the actual victim? I mean, obviously there was pre planning around, you know, certainly the couriers killing, you know, the kill kit was there years in advance and other things like that. But was it like a 
I've built this spider web and now let me see who falls in it. Or did he, do we know whether he decided days in advance, weeks, months? I think it was very shortly before um, these. And and maybe that was also, you know, you know, in some ways that could be considered high risk, but it could be low risk. If he's not, you know, doing a lot of surveillance or spending a lot of time, he's not going to be noticed. But you know, again, it could be considered high risk if you haven't planned out who you're going to get because you don't know what you're going to get when you go inside that house. Mm-hmm. He planned well in advance to commit these crimes. He did not plan well in advance what which victims he was going to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, he laid the groundwork for when he could, you know, eventually do what he wanted to do. But, you know, in, in terms of like, like going into the courier's home, I don't think he really knew what he was going to encounter. I mean, he he was a very observant individual, and I think he could probably see, okay, there's, you know, there's only one car here, and there's, you know, no toys in the yard or, you know, whatever. He could probably get an idea. And it was, you know, kind of home. He probably recognized, okay, I, I kind of you know, it's not a huge home. I can kind of determine what the layout is. So if I go in, he, he kind of knew where he was going, even though he hadn't been in the home prior to that. So, I mean, he just put his skills of observation to use. And, but yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of pre-planning in the selection of those specific victims. Yeah. I wonder whether that's also part of what creeps people out. Kind of that idea I could be sitting here right now and I could decide to go walk, I don't know, down, down the street and end up being a victim of Israel keys, or I could do it 30 minutes later and live a happy life, not knowing at all. Like that feeling that, that, that randomness of, of, of uh, that last minute selection. I wonder whether that's part of what scares people. And certainly with, particularly with the couriers, they're just sitting in their home. They didn't even go out. And it's one decision, you know, driving down a road, like, you know, or maybe, you know, I I think he had surveilled earlier and then picked the house and then came back. And it's just, you know, what was it? There's, There's something specific just about that house that day. It's like, that's the house or um, and, and it so that is frightening. It's just you could just be picked for something you have no control over whatsoever. Right. And there's, I don't want to say there's nothing you can do about it, but I think the serial killer, Richard Ramirez, who is known as the mm-hmm. Night Stalker, I'm sure I'm not going to get the exact quote right, but I think he was asked, is there anything anyone could have done to prevent being murdered by you? And he, you know, said basically, no, when I've set my mind to something, I'm going to do it. And that's, those were not his words. Exactly. It was a lot creepier um, what, what he said, but I think that's what makes serial killers so scary is that it's like, no, once I've set my mind to doing this, I'm going to do it. And there's really nothing that you can do to prevent it from happening or to make yourself safe from that. Right. 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 And it's I terrifying. Think- yeah, and we get this comfort from the idea of like if I don't do this or if I do do this, if I put an alarm or if I don't go to this neighborhood or I don't participate in this activity or I don't look like this, I'll be safe. And I think that's like it kind of the, the idea of a serial killer 
just shakes our shakes our our sense of safety and control, which may be false anyway. But um, it feels like it throws it off a bit. But I was going to ask you um, another question since it's October and Halloween month. But you know, I, I've been thinking about all those those things like the you know sort of myths built on reality, like the razor blades and the Halloween candy, and you know, clap clap, look in the mirror, and Candyman's <laughs> man's gonna come out. And that's a great story, by the way, the real story behind uh, Candyman. Have you ever heard that one? I don't think so. No, yeah. but I I remember hearing scary stories. You know, Halloween. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's- so the Candyman story was a movie and, you know, I'm going to ignore the recent remake of it, but in the original one, it was, you know, it, it dealt with all these really interesting issues uh, around it. But if you, um, I think it was like, you looked in the mirror and you said Candyman twice or something like that. Um, then Candyman would come out of the mirror and he was this murderer, but it comes from a real story in the Chicago housing projects where there was a woman I think her name was Ruthie. I cannot remember her last name, but she called 911. She called 911 twice and she had said they're coming out of the bathrooms, they're coming out of the mirrors. The cops got there, knocked on the door, heard nothing. So they did what, you know, every law enforcement should do at that moment. They left. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, after a while, they. They found her murdered and they literally did come through the medicine cabinet because in the building that she was in, there was this space between the apartments and the only thing that wasn't secured was the medicine cabinet. So that's where the Candyman story comes from. But he's probably not coming for most of us. And there are a bunch of them. Oh my gosh, that is a scary story. Isn't that frightening? That is really, that is very frightening. You know, I, I, when I first heard it, I said that brings a whole new meaning to medicine cabinet safety. I had no idea. (laughs) I mean, now you have to wonder like all these like scary stories, like they're, they probably are based on something that's Uh true. Yes. At some point, some element of it was true. And I think, you know, we think of people like Israel Keys, and I don't think it would be very productive in my life to prepare to make sure I'm never killed by Israel Keys. So <laughs> I'm I'm curious though, or Candyman, or the razor blades in my candy. Although I still check it since I've been a kid, I still check it. <laughs> the, yeah, but the um, the but what do you think we should really be concerned about when it comes to our safety? Like, are there there you know? Are there are there things that you know? I don't know whether it puts us at risk or or what the real you know what are, what are the real risks for for us as average people when you look at the, look at it by the numbers. I think where people are most at risk are in their own homes, and you know people that are dealing with a- abuse and control and uh, physical and emotional abuse, I should say, and, and control is that, I mean, that's where the real danger is to people in, in their own homes. And obviously we're not all in danger, but uh, I think people, you know, forget that there are so many vulnerable people who are involved in chronic 
violence and chronic abuse. Mm. So I, I think that's the real problem. The the because the the problem is not serial killers, and that's probably why we do find them so fascinating because they are rare, and most people have never met a serial killer or investigated or known anyone killed by a serial killer. And I'm not saying, and when I say rare, rare does not mean never. I'm quoting Michael Johnson, (laughs) gold medalist, Michael Johnson, rare does not mean never. And, um, so, but I, you know, in terms of like people, there are so many people that are just living their lives, you know, they're, they're in chronic violence and they don't have access to things or help or, and and I think that's where the real problem is, you know. And and I I'm I'm not somebody like I'm not a criminologist or you know sociologist or things like that. But or but I do think that that is a problem that so many people are dealing with, and you know don't know how to get help or don't have access to getting help. There's just you know, a lot of a lot of violence particularly against, um, you know, vulnerable populations. Right, right. I, um, yeah, I, uh, And I do want to clarify, I'm not a criminologist. I, you know, but it's, it's just from what I've seen in my career. And certainly that is a very specific perspective, you know, and throughout my entire career, um, that's, that's kind of what I've come to see. Yeah. And I think like to your point, I think a lot of our fascination is about what's rare, but I remember one, one one friend of mine talking about like, you know, reading, reading books about serial killers. It's a bit, it's like listening to music or anything else. It might be a distraction sometimes from the things that are uh, wrong a little closer to us. If that makes sense. I think it is a distraction and, when I I might have shared this story on my first interview, but when I was getting interviewed by psychologists for my mental health because of the kind of work I do, the psychologist said, "Well, I had a very Pollyanna-ish view of my life, and but yet I was also very honest on my questionnaire, so he didn't think I was lying." And he asked why, you know, somebody in my line of work typically doesn't feel so positive about their life. And I guess I thought of, I said, well, I think I'm just really thankful for what I have and that I haven't had to deal with what I see. Mm. And I just, I reflect, I think I'm just very thankful and I'm very thankful that I have the opportunity to be able to work on these cases and somehow help and provide assistance. And, you know, but it is, you know, just watching, true crime or reading true crime, I I do think it can be an escape for people and it can make us reflect back on our own lives and be thankful for them as well. I mean, I I don't know if I, you know, have the answer as to why we're so fascinated, but I think that there are just many different reasons for, you know, many different people. Yeah. Yeah. I am thankful for you joining me again. Um, I think I am too. I really appreciate you having me on. We always have these very deep conversations. <laughs> the, the, un, the unexpected. <laughs> well, it is very unexpected, and it's it was also very. It makes me think. That's for sure. 
And it, it also makes me realize and, and that I, you know, I don't have all the answers. I don't know things. I make mistakes. And it just, you remind me of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you remind me of the same thing sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I read that one wrong. <laughs> I definitely enjoyed talking cases, talking to you about cases because I'm like, oh, yeah, I am dumb. <laughs> no, oh, no. I mean, I think that's what we connect on, too. We do like to talk about cases and go back and forth. And and I, as you know, I, I don't have all the answers. And I always admit that. I'm like, I don't know. I have no clue. <laughs> um, it really it really does take like really studying and looking into and, and I have a very you know, specific expertise. I, I'm, you know, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but you and I, we have a lot of great discussions and back and forths when we talk about some of these true crime cases and I, I really enjoy it, but you do remind me how much I don't know with all your, <laughs> all your questions. <laughs> the, um, the, I always say it's easier to be on the question side. <laughs> um, so I, I just want to thank you again for joining and to see if you want to say anything in closing. Um, I appreciate it. I'm excited about the consult. You know, beyond uh, just my interest in true crime, I think another element for me that I really appreciate about the work that you guys have done I want to say this for you and the whole group of great people you're working together. It's so honest. It's not sensational. It's so helpful. Like, I think not only are they interesting cases, I think people can actually get good things and learn good things and feel like they're on a solid foundation based on the work you do. But let me turn it over to you if you have anything. Thank you. I, I appreciate those comments. We really do try hard to be realistic. And if we're not, people would never believe us. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, they're just making things up or they're, uh, they don't know what they're talking about. So we really do try to be as candid and as honest about this type of work as we can be. So I, I appreciate those comments. And I think I'm going to leave it on, since we've talked about a serial killer, I'm just going to leave it on the note that to remember, like, not all serial killers are the same. And they're as different as the different people out there and different offenders, and they have different motivations. Now, there are some characteristics that they may have in common and they may share. Um, but I'm going to quote my colleague, Bob Drew. If you've seen one serial killer before, you've seen one serial killer before. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook. We'll see you all again next week.